And welcome to Here We Stand. I'm your host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. It's February 20th, and that, of course, is one of our favorite tunes, the Ballad of the Green Mountain Boys, with Ethan Allen, who started the revolution prematurely, according to the Founding Fathers. They said, hey, what are you guys doing up there in Vermont, seizing forts and driving British judges off their thrones and canceling all the mortgage agreements, mortgage tyranny or the farmers of your area. You're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to tell you what to do. So here's for self-reliance and direct action, folks. It's on our tradition. We are here every week to arm you with the knowledge and the inner resources, as well as the order, to how to carry on this fight for humanity, our more serious fight, a most serious fight that we have never faced before. And Looking at this today, I wanted to go beneath the surface of things and talk not only about the obvious stuff, because all of you are wanting updates and reports. I'm routinely on Zoom calls with people all over the world who are working on common law republics and our response to the COVID corporate police state. But I want to go beneath that, because when you look at the whole situation and the history of it, and we're going to go into detail more about that today, There is no wrong or injustice being done to us now that wasn't already done on somebody else. And that was done on other people with your help and complicity. Your taxes, your votes, your church attendance, and your general indifference. That's a fact. And so your own suffering now isn't simply a burden on you. Because when you suffer at that injustice, it's a way for you to actually end your complicity in the wrong and to help end the suffering. So really the question is, who really is the enemy? Who is the target of our protests except partly we ourselves and what we're a part of? In other words, folks, we are both problem and answer. We have it in our hands to begin the world again, and that's what we realize at every moment. Now, we talk a lot about Sun Tzu on this show, and one of his basic maxims is know your adversary and know yourself. Well, what makes it difficult is when your adversary is yourself, and there are things in yourself holding us back from doing this struggle, doing this work. And we've had a lot of experience that over the last number of years where people who start to take the steps towards inner and outer freedom bulk and hold back out of fear, influencing, whatever. It's almost like today in the world there's two motions going on. There's a a motion downwards as a very psychotic culture collapses in on itself because of whole history. And then there's a rising birth happening in the world, but it's largely unseen. It's within each of us. It's hidden, but it's present everywhere. And I want to go into that in the second part of the show um, and start with uh, an inspiration in that regard. Uh, Walt Whitman, the poet of mid-19th century America, said, and this is beautiful, music is what rises in you when you are reminded of it by the notes. That's natural law speaking. It's all within us. Music is what arises in you when you are reminded of it by the notes. Laws are but the unfolding of the natural justice that resides first in your own heart. Government is nothing but what you ordain. Only what proves itself to every man and woman is true. Let me just say those last two very important. Government is nothing but what you ordain. Only what proves itself to every man and woman is true. So the whole notion of sides, which we saw in the whole trucker convoy, that there's good guys and bad guys, just pick your side and everyone's fighting with each other. Or in America, where blue and red states are warring against each other, Trump versus Biden, 
Well, we know for a fact who profits from that. We know that China is picking up the marbles as they, quote, and live by Sun Tzu and get your enemy to destroy themselves so that you don't have to do it. We know that's history. That's just playing itself out again in our own backyard. So we have to look beyond the obvious good guy, bad guy scenario. Although I noticed it was funny in the um, New York Times today, they had a uh, description of the trucker convoy ending in Ottawa and how the police had to go and one by one force the truckers out of the uh, nation's so-called capital. And the writers of the article had this kind of wry comment about, you know, they're a, a, a militant minority. Well, I'm reminded by the quote of uh, Marcus Aurelius 2,000 years ago when he said, the majority has no right to inflict its insanity on the minority. Because don't forget, it's the creative, active minorities who change history. And that's proven time and again. So before we get to the uh, kind of more reflective part of the show, which is a bit later, um, I want to just give a, a recap and an overview if people have asked about stuff going on. Recently, we've been getting confirmations from people all over the world that they want to convene in the summer uh, International Confederation of People Who Want to Establish Common Law Republics, which is our answer to the whole corporate police state, the corporatocracy now that's bigger than governments. And that will be convened the weekend of July 1st to 4th. And people are also taking other actions in relation to that. But again, it's it's really important to keep in mind that you have to act where you are in your own communities. We have a perfect example of that on the west coast of Canada, where there seems to be, in the whole area around Prince Rupert, uh, in effect, a puppet government being set up by the Chinese. The Chinese now effectively run the west coast. They have the right, because of Justin Trudeau's Foreign Investment Protection Act, they have the right to station their troops there, to have areas set up that are not under Canadian law or jurisdiction at all. In the areas around Prince Rupert and others, the Chinese basically are running the area under their own laws and jurisdiction. And uh, one of the reasons Justin Trudeau went out there after the big trucker convoy happened is he was in consultation with his Chinese puppet masters who are setting up, in effect, a, a puppet government on the West Coast. Now, this is not unusual. Empires do that all over the world. It's just kind of hard for Canadians to accept that, yes, it's happening now in our own backyard. But that's why it's very important to be on the ground. This is where we learn these things, not through the Internet, but direct action. And it's interesting because my Internet got very badly whacked this last week, and um, I've been offline, totally. We've experienced various cyber attacks, and not being on the Internet has been really wonderful. Uh, I'm getting much clearer in my thinking. I'm a lot calmer. I see things in a, a much more solid, centered kind of way, and I think it definitely has to do with the whole electronic weaponry and, and the nature of this system that we all rely on, unfortunately. I mean, can you imagine when you were growing up and when I was growing up decades ago, someone telling me that one day the entire human race would rely on one source for all of its knowledge, all of its communication, all of its sense of reality and involvement with other people in the world would all happen through one medium controlled by a few big money guys. Well, who would ever agree to that? And yet now I say to people, let's just call each other. Oh, no, 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 I'd rather send you a Zoom message or I'd rather send you, uh, you know, a PDF or a link. It's so much easier to rely on the system the slave masters have set up, but we have to make a conscious break. And quite often in life, when bad stuff happens to us, it's for our own good. You know, when we uh, I notice the, some of the truckers were complaining that the government is freezing their bank accounts, well, great. That's how I began to learn. When my bank account was frozen and taken away, and I haven't been able to open a bank account for 20 years since then, 
it forced me to rely more on the people around me, on my own smarts, on God, and it turned out good in the long run. There's lots of ways to survive without uh, operating through their system, and this is something that we're all learning. So communication directly, have meetings face-to-face, get back to the good old methods that have sustained us as the human race in our love and our integrity for many, many millennia. And so what I want to do briefly is look at a summary, and you can find this in some of my recent books. In 2021, I wrote two books. And one is called Memoirs of a Revolutionary, where where I look at the last 50 years in the world political economy and how it's altered, how it's created the COVID corporate police state. And another book, which is a personal one, is a novel, really, my second novel out of 18 books. And it's called Land of Liberty, and it looks at the Annett family over the last nine generations coming over from England, how my great-great-great-grandfather, Philip, took part in the 1837 rebellion that got crushed and created the tyranny in Canada we still have today. And Philip wrote a letter in 1830 to our Annette family back in Frome in Wiltshire in England. And he wrote, you must all come here while you have a chance. If you don't like it, don't, likely you will starve. I was agreeably surprised when I came to the Canadas to see what a fine country it is. It being excellent land bearing crops of wheat and corn for 20 or 30 years without dung. Here you have no rent to pay, no poor rates, and scarcely any taxes. No gamekeepers or lords over you. Here you can have every good thing. It is a land of liberty and plenty, and we are held in respect by our neighbors. We aim to hold on to what we have. And seven years later, Philip took up the flintlock and tried to overthrow the British crown and fortunately survived the hangman, or I wouldn't be here. But his words are amazing because I see people, does that sound like Canada to you today? a land of liberty and plenty? No, because what the folks back then called the family compact, a small little elite, still around the country. Once for the British Empire, then for the American, now for the Chinese Empire. But the struggle and the, for the land of liberty remains. And so those are two books I strongly recommend. You can get them through murderbydecree.com or on Amazon, Memoirs of a Revolutionary and Land of Liberty. But let me quote from the first one um, initially to give some background into what it is we're in today. In the years that followed the, um, the era that we're all quite familiar with, um, the, um, hold on, I missed my place here, 54, got it, okay. The years that followed um, the 70s and that were really quite tumultuous and yet historic because it brought in something that had never been seen before in the world. The last decade of the 20th century, in the 1990s, it witnessed a revolution, but not the kind that we who had grown up in the 60s and 70s had expected. It was the birth of a new political order, and what it, it represented really capitalism's bursting of the constraints of national boundaries and formal democracy. That new order was called, and is still called, a global corporatocracy. That's the direct rule of big money through its own oligarchic megastate. That is, not through liberal democracy anymore. They don't need it. Big money rules directly. And we see that now in every politician telling people that they've got to get the shot in the arm and do what Big Pharma tells you to. That came out of a whole period in the 1980s where people were brainwashed to think that what the corporate sector needs and wants is what you need and want. We're seeing that manifest today. Well, it's significant because the whole corporatist system came out of, guess who? Fascist Italy and 
Nazi Germany. During the 1920s and 30s, they pioneered the system. In response to the economic collapse that happened after World War I, the first big corporations appeared. And they what Mussolini's fascism and Hitler's Nazism did was they fused big money with the state and crushed all independent systems of democracy, like now. No civil liberties, no independent action or thought. It's just ruled by Big Brother. And interestingly, it was based, that whole method was based on Catholic social doctrines, which is why the Pope then and now cozies up to a lot of these corporate fascist types, because they're doing exactly what the Roman Empire, a.k.a. Roman Catholic Church, has always tried to do, which is impose its one system of rule on everybody in the world. And that system has converged now. Uh, in fact, what Adolf Hitler did is he created the first corporate state based on a permanent war economy. And ironically, even though he was defeated um, at the cost of 50 million people, his system blossomed after World War II. The Nazi model was so successful, the corporate model was that it was adopted by all of the Western powers after World War II, especially the United States, a move which led to the Cold War and, ironically, the eventual collapse of both the American and Russian systems. But after then, the, the virus of the fascist corporate system metastasized and eventually has infected our entire world. Well, the 1990s was a watershed. That's when, like in the 1930s, big money reorganized itself into a global totalitarian system. And that's what the 1980s was about. The whole privatization thing under Reagan and Thatcher was to brainwash everyone to accept the new world order, where the interest of big money was first, last, and always the only concern of government. And the people had to kowtow and go along. Now, that's blown up in a big way for us now. But um, what we have to realize is that that system is inherently unstable. Because when you look at the history of capitalism, it's really interesting. Traditionally, the system would operate according to what are called um, booms and slumps. And, uh, you know, during the, the booms, uh, the, the system would prosper. But then in order to get rid of the smaller inefficient units, it would have a slump, a deliberate depression and recession so that big money could buy up and destroy and buy up all the smaller guys. That's, that eventually led to the whole system we have now, which is a unitary system. Now, in nature, and anywhere in the world, we know that the more unitary something gets, the more unstable it gets. You need diversity. You need a lot of variation in the world, in human beings, in their political systems, or one spark can bring it all down. One virus, if you like, can destroy the whole ball of wax. And that means that our system, it, the wealth is getting more and more concentrated at the top. And in fact, eventually, instead of the hundred corporations that rule the world economy now, you're going to have one that everybody either works for or dies. And that evolution, though, is or devolution, is actually creating massive potential instability. And that's why the system has to be so tyrannical. Because it's more unstable, they come down on us even more. And you may know, have noticed how extreme things are getting, like in the corporate media. It's like things are so black and white now. There's no variation. There's no pretense of objective journalism anymore. It's just attack anybody who do, doesn't get the shot. Um, you know, it, it, that's how people and systems act when they're unstable and they're frightened. They have to use tyranny and the hammer because they don't trust their own power. And so that's really a sign of hope for all of us that this, that 
we see that because it creates the potential for us to all act. But you have to be armed with knowledge. And one of the other ways they're doing that, of course, is not through simple repression, but through mind control techniques. And, of course, in all of the work in the residential schools and everything, you can see at murderbydecree.com and the genocide in the Indian hospitals in Canada, all of that research was for a basic purpose, and that was to know how to control the human mind more effectively. Well, in uh, in the late 1990s and ending in 2003, you, you might have remembered this thing called the Human Genome Project, which scientifically mapped and manipulated the entire genetic makeup of mankind. Eventually, they want people to become cybernetic drones attached to a big corporate machine without our own minds. And that is definitely the direction in which they are trying to push the human race so that in another 10 or 20 years, we won't own our own minds anymore at all. Another reason why you folks need to get off the Internet, because it's influencing our minds in ways we don't even understand. And it's funny because I'll say to people, cybernetic uh, programming, subliminal messages you receive through the screen on your Internet, all of that is influencing the way you feel and think, and even your own memories. People say, yeah, yeah, I know, but I've got to send out these emails. No, you see, that's the dependency by which we are 10 years from now not going to own ourselves anymore. And it has to be stopped now. So there's got to be this radical kind of shifting of gears in a 180-degree other direction if there is going to be a future for us. And when you look at the history of what's led to the present times, you can see how it all flows naturally from the system. You know, the capitalism and then corporatism after it needs people who are simply functional units. They, They don't want, as Henry Ford once said, I don't want workers who think, I want workers who work. So our intelligence now is geared towards a purely functional intelligence. We're not given any kind of encouragement to think creatively and act independently. All of those now are no-nos. Well, that's a function of the needs of the corporatist system, and we see that played out all the time. So I really urge you to kind of read that part of of the book, um, Memoirs of a Revolutionary, because it goes into how we got here. And, of course, for people in Canada... The extreme importance of the work that I've been doing for 20 years is that all of those tests and things were, um, those methods were tested out first on Indigenous children in Indian hospitals and residential schools. You know, when we were out there at the churches year after year telling the stories of how children were killed en masse, how Pfizer and these other pharma companies were using and still do use children in their murderous drug testing experiments, which is one of the reasons why they were, in our January 15th common law court verdict, found guilty of crimes against humanity. And say we've said to people, those COVID drugs are the product of medical genocide and the mass murder of children. They're banished drugs. You have the right to see them, seize them and certainly refuse to put them in your own children's arm because they're the product of transnational criminal organizations, otherwise known as big pharma. Well, all of that's been proved in court. We have the means to do that now. And without, however, knowing the history of where it came from, we're not going to know what to do. And I say, you know, when we had those protests over many years outside the churches and everything, saying we have to stop this or it'll start happening to all of us, well, that was prophetic, because look what's going on now, folks. We were out there alone, a few dozen of us, me and a few Native people. None of the people who are objecting now about the COVID measures were out there with us. There was massive indifference. And now those same folks are upset that it's happening to them. That's history's irony, but it's how we learn. 
it's how we realize that an injury done to any of us will eventually blow back and become an injury to all of us. And that's the lesson of the work we're doing. So get educated. Murderbydecree.com. And don't ever release your common sense. I um, recently compiled an inventory of the victories we won over the last 20 years. And every time we had a campaign, the people who triumphed did so because they relied on their own natural judgment on what to do next. They didn't check on the internet or from some expert on what to do. They used their common sense. And they knew that when you protested inside and outside of churches and struck at their public image and their money, that's what would make them buckle. And sure enough, it is. Same thing applies today. We are aiming at the summit of the system, big pharma who now run these governments in their own corporate interests, but we're also aiming at the local level, what people need to do now and can do armed with our warrants. It's all at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. And, of course, the alternative within Canada and more and more around the world, republicofkanata.ca. Okay, I'm going to rest my throat, and I hope that was not too fast. People tend to say, Kev, when you get excited, you speak fast. So I will try to consciously slow down here, folks. There's just a lot to go over. We're going to take a break here, and we're going to listen to a uh, reflection I gave before the whole COVID nonsense hit, it was during Advent, uh, the Christmas season in 2019. And this is uh, a very relevant reflection that you will uh, see why after the uh, the break. In the reflection I do in the, the latter part of the show based on this, it related to part of my experience in Port Alberni when I was first then covering this with the Native people there. So we'll listen to this reflection and be back after that. Hi everyone, this is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice again. I'm giving you today a sermon for the third Sunday in Advent. That's the upcoming Sunday, December 15th, 2019. And this is part of an ongoing series called God's Revolution, a radical reading of scripture for refugees from false religion. It's sponsored by the Covenanters, a separatist political and spiritual movement. Today's gospel is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. It's sometimes called Mary's Song of Praise, announcing the birth of Jesus, or the Magnificat. But I call today's sermon, An Outcast's Victory, The World Turned Upside Down. And when you read Mary's words, and you go back to the original Greek, once again you get a very different message from what you see printed in the Bible. Mary's words are, My soul grows and rejoices, for in my poverty I am chosen to do great things. Because of me, rulers are pulled down from their thrones and destroyed, and the lowly are raised up and exalted. The hunger are filled with all that is good, and the rich are banished and sent away empty. Well, all of this reminded me of a woman named Karen Connerly. Karen was someone who people tried not to notice, especially in church. She was poor and bedraggled, she was Aboriginal and pregnant, and she was barely 16 years old. On the morning we met, Karen stood tentatively on the edge of our congregation with a look of what I thought at the time was fear. In fact, she had arrived that day to overturn our world. At the time, I had been the minister of St. Andrew's United Church in Port Alberni for barely a year, and my life seemed wonderful, content and happy. Our Porto Bernie congregation had tripled in size, and everyone seemed quite content. They were especially delighted on Sundays when my little infant daughter, Eleanor, used to toddle to the front of the service during my sermon and insist that I pick her up. So I'd stand there and preach with Eleanor in my arms and 
that delighted especially the elderly ladies in the congregation. Now, at the time in my joy, I couldn't imagine how that was all about to change forever. Well, when Karen Connerly appeared that Sunday in our church in the fall of 1993, it didn't really alarm a lot of us at first because a few local Indians had already begun to attend the service. The local New Chalmuth Indians had begun to accept my invitation to come to church. But they were mostly affluent natives. They were tribal council people. And they kept to themselves, which pretty much suited my white parishioners just fine. As for me, I was feeling pretty proud of myself that I had been able to seat Indians alongside whites, which was the first in our church. And to have Indians and whites sitting together on Sundays, it was also a first anywhere in Port Alberni. Even though at the time... Despite feeling that pride, I didn't know the conditions, the homegrown slaughter that my own church had perpetrated on the local natives that was responsible for that ongoing apartheid in our community. Well, Karen Connerly changed all of that. She did it in the way anyone does who is living on the edge and can't afford to hide the truth by being polite or considerate. Well, I knew something was afoot when... Karen walked into the church, and she didn't sit down with the rest of us after her opening hymn. She stood at the back of the sanctuary and just stared at me. One of the ushers went up and spoke to her, but she shook her head and, and barked something that made heads turn. I was weighing what to do when suddenly she began shuffling towards me at the front of the church, and even before her wailing began, I could see that she was crying. Her words rocked the church. She s- cried out, They killed my baby. They killed my little Charlie. Well, at that point, an usher named George Geddes got up, and he went over to the woman and actually put her in an arm lock. And the congregation exploded at that point in cries and shouts of outrage. Of course, I didn't know if they were outraged at what she was doing or what George was doing to her. Anyway, she tried to wrestle free, but another guy got up, grabbed her as well. And at that point, I just came down out of the pulpit. I hurried to them because I was dumbstruck that men that I thought I knew were perpetrating such sudden violence on this little Indian woman. I got the ushers to back off. I guided Karen to an empty pew, and I sat her down, and then I asked everyone around me to just sit down and calm down. Well, Karen then poured out her, her story to me. She described what had happened, and people sat in a stony silence while others got up and hurried out of the church. I was advised later by my board that I should have let George and his buddies manhandle the inconvenient Indian out of church so that the service could have continued in peace. But even then, as obtuse as I was, I knew that something else, something more important was at work than just church business as usual. Karen Connerly was a single mother. She lived on welfare in the midtown slum area of Port Burney that's still called the ghetto. It's where mostly Indians live. She'd been raped by her father and by uncles at the local Seychad Indian Reservation, and so she lived in hiding in the ghetto with her one-year-old, daughter, one-year-old son, Charlie, and her newborn daughter, the one who was not yet born in her womb. One day, little Charlie began to cough uncontrollably, and soon he turned blue and went into convulsions, so in a panic, Karen carried him up to West Coast General Hospital and asked for their help. But the emergency room staff turned her away, turned Charlie away. I was appalled when I heard that. I was oblivious to the emptying pews around me. I was just focused on Karen. I said, what, you mean they wouldn't help him? She shook her head and said, they just let him die. The nurse said, 
they don't treat Indians. Well, after that, Karen sat with the corpse of her little boy at a bus stop near the hospital. She sat there till morning until a Mountie found her and actually arrested her, and then she was charged with manslaughter in the death of her own son. No one believed that it was the hospital that had killed Charlie. It's how they treat us here, Karen explained, after she calmed down a bit. It's always been that way for us, but they're not going to kill this one, she said, and she patted her swollen belly. Well, everything changed after that day. For me, especially. The thrones in my mind began to topple for me. I opened my heart and my door to many more of Karen's people and to the legions of other murdered Indian children that still lie in unmarked graves up at the United Church Alberni Indian Residential School. And that change spread from me and around me. It eventually began a political and a spiritual firestorm across Canada and across the world that's begun to overthrow a genocidal church and state system and turn everything upside down. Well, many centuries ago, there lived a woman a lot like Karen Connerly. She, too, was unwed, poor, outcast. She, too, was pregnant with a child and with a revolution, a new presence in the world that would make the last first and the first last. That woman's name, of course, was Mary, and she was chosen to bring Jesus the Christ into the world. Well, today's Gospel reading from Luke chapter 1 speaks of that revolution. It's often called the Magnificat. Unfortunately, the Christian churches surrounded this tale with a lot of cultic imagery and belief about a so-called virgin mother of God. But Mary was not a virgin. A church, the church only calls her that because of a Latin mistranslation of the Greek word for young woman. Very young woman. Because Karen was a teenager, so was Mary. They were likely very young. Mary was as poor and as human as Karen Connerly and as human as Jesus himself. Mary's song of praise that in today's gospel, we read in today's gospel reading, is like John the Baptist's announcement that we heard last week about the coming of Jesus. This song of praise is intended to prepare people for Christmas and the imagined Bethlehem birth narrative, but once again, myth gets in the way of fact. Because as we know, Christmas has nothing to do with Christianity. December 25th was the Roman festival called Saturnalia, otherwise known as the time for reversal. For on that day, the slave owners would take off their robes and be the servant to their slaves, who would become the masters, for the day at least. That's no accident. The same great reversal, the turning of the world upside down, is at the core of Mary's song of praise. By naming Saturnalia as Jesus' birthday, the earliest Christians were saying, this is the consequence of the justice that Jesus has ushered into the world. All the rulers are pulled down, and the poor everywhere are raised. Now, pull down, that phrase in Greek, the Greek word for that is katareo, which means to utterly destroy, to obliterate, so they're not there anymore. Rulers of one over another, the rule of one man over another, is obliterated. Well, clearly by that, it's obvious that a radically new world is coming into being for a purpose not so obvious at first. It's often been said that the best way to tame a revolutionary idea is to turn it into a religion. Well, that's certainly happened with Christianity, because if you merely worship someone, you don't have to take them seriously. And so the radical message of Jesus, of human equality and liberation, was quickly contained and mythologized by the wealthy corporate church of Rome into a cult ritual that really smothered the power of Jesus' words and message. 
The religious cult killed the memory and spirit of Jesus and made him a sacrificial atonement for so-called human sin, a heresy called Roman Catholicism that, like all worldly empires, creates shame and humiliation in people in order to control them. But that degrading spirit is the opposite of what we hear today in Mary's triumphant song of praise. Her song is imbued with a force that breaks apart oppression and elevates humanity above itself. It shows us that even in our loneliness, we are chosen to fulfill a higher purpose and remake the world according to divine justice. Well, not surprisingly, as you can imagine, I used to get in trouble with my staid theology professors about this gospel reading. Its revolutionary message was not obvious to them as it was to me. In fact, it frightened my profs because, like Jesus' overturning of the money chambers, changers in the Jerusalem temple, it was outside their experience and went against their perceived interests. Richard Leggett was a particularly fat theologian who taught me Bible studies, and he used to get mad at me. He'd say, no, no, these texts can't be taken literally. Mary didn't literally mean the rich when she said they were, they were sent away hungry. It's a spiritual allegory. She meant anyone who's inwardly impoverished and toppling rulers from the throne. Well, that's just a reference to Satan, not to earthly rulers. <laughs> well, I remember answering him, well, then how about when Jesus says that a rich man can no more enter heaven than a camel can pass through the eye of a needle? Doesn't that mean it's impossible for the rich to go into heaven? <laughs> well, Big Dick smiled at me smugly, always quick with an answer, and he said, No, the eye of the needle refers to a little-known gate in Jerusalem. It's small, but you can still crawl through it if you try. How convenient. And on and on ad nauseum. Over the years, I've learned that belief for most Christians is determined not by their faith as much as by their salary and pension plan. Fortunately, Jesus didn't have either. Well, to illustrate all this and to go deeper in today's gospel message, let's examine its key words from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, if you want to follow along. Mary's first words in this passage are telling. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Well, the words in Greek for soul is psyche, which means substance or breath. And the word for magnifies is megaluno, which means to declare or to make greater or better. My soul magnifies the Lord seems to be saying that Mary herself is somehow making God better. She's making God more than God. Mary is the subject of the sentence. God is the object. Mary is acting upon God and perhaps on the Godness within herself. But then the rest of the passage seems to reverse that. It has Mary saying that God is choosing her to bring down the mighty and elevate the poor despite their lowly status. But this is ultimately Mary's song, and the first words situate Mary as the cause of everything that follows. It's amazing. Well, let's avoid the temptation of interpreting that meaning to somehow cultify Mary into godlike status, as the Church of Rome has done. In fact, what's being described in Luke 1.46 is fully human and reveals the majesty of being fully human. If there is divine greatness in our world, it is because of the courage and the witness of the human soul. The mystery called God has taken flesh in every child born and awaits like a seed in us to flower into the life of one like Jesus, who by being fully human was fully divine. Well, when you think about it, it's an incredible revelation. 
It puts an end to religion and to the world as we know it, where we're expected to always defer to some other authority figure and wait upon salvation and meaning to be delivered by somebody else. That evolution away from that childhood notion into godness within, understanding of our wider place in the world, that evolution is evident when you simply read through the Bible, the way it progresses. I mean, isn't it evident from a complete reading of the Bible, that we are already in a direct and unmediated relationship and partnership with the great mystery that we call God. Because as it progresses, God, the idea, the impression of God, and perhaps the nature of God changes. He evolves from a vengeful, judgmental ruler into a state of unconditional love. Well, in the same way that that child matures from self-absorption and understanding, Our soul journey as a people is bringing to birth a better divinity through our willingness to accept the risk and the cost of being human, of existence. The mystery grows and evolves through us as we become more than ourselves. The ancient Greek writers and the person who authored the book of Job depict how man rises above God by persevering in the truth, whatever the cost, despite our mortality, despite our weakness. The Greek playwright Aeschylus wrote, The gods look with envy upon man, because although living for but a day, he surpasses the Olympians by still daring to love and to be valiant. It's beautiful. And it's all true. Like Karen Connerly and every woman who courageously brings forth life into a world of suffering and death, Mary sings in triumph because she knows that whatever comes, she's created a chance for all of us. The possibility of a new world where the old corruption is toppled. And perhaps her particular joy was to know that her own son would bring about that new way by lighting a fire and a sacred spirit in humanity that would never go out. Karen Connerly's New Chalmuth people have a story that once Christ visited their West Coast tribes many centuries before the whites ever appeared. The Christ who came to them as a woman warned the New Chalmuth that a pale people would come to their land carrying her name and words, but they would lack her inner spirit. Her teachings, the teaching that said that all of God's creatures were to be loved and respected and treated equally. Well, the Christ told the Nuchelnath that the pale Christians had lost that soul, and so they were to welcome them and lead them back to her true way. The Nuchelnath tried to do so, and they were slaughtered for it, just like Jesus was. But as with him, that spirit cannot be killed by cannon fire or smallpox or by big money. That promise rests within all of us. It's immortal. It waits to be born fully human and remake our world by first turning upside down everything inside us and around us. Well, the week after I was fired by the United Church for uncovering its crimes against her people, Karen Carnerly came back. She appeared in my church one final time. She had heard what had happened to me and she came there to support me. But when she saw that I was no longer there in the pulpit, She stood up in the service, and she declared, You're crucifying Kevin just like you did us, but God sees what you're doing, and you're going to come down. And at that point, Karen again was grabbed and finally, like me, evicted from St. Andrew's United Church. And soon after that, she was found dead. But crucifixions have never ended anything. What Karen predicted has come true, for by her courage she has birthed it into being. 
The rulers are falling, the dead churches are collapsing, and the silenced victims are standing up and speaking and reclaiming the world. Well, I've seen this revolutionary miracle. I know it to be true because I've helped birth it into being. I pray for all of you that you may come to know and give life to the same Magnificat, the divine word taken flesh among us, to topple the ruler of this world and to bring to being a new creation. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Remember, live it. Thank you. And we're back. It's all personal, and that's what I never want to lose that spirit with any of you when I'm speaking to you on the show, because there's a lot I feel obligated to share in terms of the work we're doing, and the books I've written, and my understanding, and experiences over 25 years. And yet, the, the hard facts can get in the way of the spirit, the fact that everything that is true comes out of our own experience with each other, because we're all that we have. And another anecdote about that, or anecdote, as I'd like to say, in Port Alberni, uh, before I was fired, one of the things, it was kind of like a, a revelation moment, just like the whole thing with Karen was. And there was another Native woman um, in in the church. Her name was Sadie, and she had been tortured badly in the local Alberni residential school that had been run by the same United Church that I was in then. And I asked her to help me one Sunday with serving communion. And as you probably know or may not know, um, there's a thing called the words of institution. The the minister says over the bread and the, the juice. And about on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, I asked uh, Sadie to do that. And everyone in the congregation knew who she was. They knew she had been to the the res school um, death camp on the road. And they were quite nervous when they saw her standing at the front with me, holding the communion elements. And when that had happened before, whenever a Native person helped serve them with me, a lot of people didn't get up and have communion. They stayed glued to their pews because they just didn't want to share a communion cup with a Native, I assume. Or they were just too scared by the newness of it all. But that one day, Sadie was standing there with the bread, and I asked her to say the words. And as a few tentative parishioners showed up to stand in front of us to receive the communion, Sadie said, very haltingly, this is my body broken for you. But then she added, it's been broken by you. And bang, there it was. The truth, right in front of all of them. Yes, she'd been broken by you and for you. And instantly, some of the older white people got up and just left the church. But others stared at Sadie as if for the first time, and some of them began crying. That was in the fall of 1993, just about a year before I was fired, for letting more people from the who had been through the death camp get up and speak from my pulpit about it. And then the boot came down on me and them. But... When the people who did come up and receive after, they were weeping, and they were like looking at her for the first time, and they finally got it, what she was talking about. It was made totally personal. And then more of them started lining up to receive that truth made flesh. And it's like that poem from Walt Whitman, 
when he said, I find miracles at every moment, like love letters from God lying in the street. And that's the way it was that day. And that's one of the things that broke open this whole truth of genocide in Canada. It wasn't because, you know, Stephen Harper made a, quote, apology in 2008 because we forced him to by occupying churches and freaking them out. It wasn't because, you know, academics began to issue statements about when it was safe to do so, about what went on in the residential schools. No, it was because people like Karen and Sadie, like Mary and Jesus, who had nothing in the world, by the power of their witness and that truth in them, broke down all the thrones and overturned the world. And that's what I'm realizing now. We have to never lose sight of that, never lose contact with that, not only in great souls like they who did it, but in our own selves, because this, this struggle goes on within each of us. The struggle towards either conformity to a dead existence, to a dead world, or being authentic to the spark of divinity within each one of us. And that's really what we try to fan all the time. We try to fan that spark, that flame, by inspiration and by example, especially by leading by example. But that's a hard thing to do, because we have to overcome our own fear of death and suffering. And of course, it isn't that hard, because when you've had almost everything taken from you, it happens naturally. It happened naturally. It was homeless natives who occupied those churches that forced the truth out, and me, who had lost everything in my life, pretty much. We didn't have anything else to lose, so we were freed. We were liberated. It wasn't simply that we said, well, what can they do to us now, which is true, but we also said, well, we're freed in, inside. We're, we're liberated inside to do this. We're not afraid of them anymore. And it, fortunately, one of the blessings that came out of this for me, is that I have lost that fear that I once had, my worst fear, of course, losing my children. But they weren't gone. It was an illusion, coming fear and fear. Just like the all the illusions of fear that now run people's lives, they can blow away in an instant when we simply do the right thing. So in the last, um, what do we have here, about, well, five, ten minutes, ten minutes, I want to share again from this book, Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four. Now, this is one of my books, and it's one of my most heartfelt books. It really, if you want to understand why the COVID state is here, why genocide happened in Canada, we put a human face on it. You can see up close in the lives of these four men, Harry Wilson, Bingo Dawson, Ricky Lavalley, and William Coombs, who's the one who saw Queen Elizabeth take those children away and never seen again, and then William was murdered in St. Paul's Catholic Hospital as a result when he went public about it. Let me just read a little bit about this. The crevices of any city mingle with worse than we can imagine, and for too long it has found its way to me. It surges over and leaves me standing, but its tide washes away those like Harry Wilson into oblivion, while I remain as impossibly erect as a battered coastal lighthouse. I was with him in his last years, and yet for all our time together I could not throw Harry a lifeline, for nothing could have helped him. He said what he could while he could, and he introduced me to the others. Bingo Dawson was one of them. I had seen him before, perched in his own regal state at the northeast corner of Maine and Hastings, from where he never seemed to budge. He knew everyone on both sides in the invisible line, cop and vagrant, junkie and dealer. Never hurried, always listening and watching. Bingo had noticed me, too. Been wanting to meet you, he coughed, flicking a doob into the gutter. You're that minister. He spoke as if his words explained everything. And without being invited, he joined me at the uh, at the Ovaltine Cafe that day. 
His real name was Johnny Dawson, unlike Harry, who was some kind of distant cousin. He was a mixture of northern Nishka and coastal Heshquit. He was also a survivor of an Anglican torture center called the St. Michael's Residential School in Alert Bay, from where he had escaped when he was barely 12. It explains some of his hard ballsiness because he bore none of Harry's crushed demeanor. Bingo squinted at me, and as we sat down, he lifted his arm and pulled up his sleeve, a long, jagged scar stretched from elbow to wrist. You don't want to know, he said. It's why I got out of there. Harry could have got out, but he stayed. Maybe it's because the doctor took his manhood away from him. But we all make our choice in the end, man, every one of us. And, you know, looking at these guys, thinking back of what they were, who they were, and the fact that they had nothing, all four of them took part in our church protests. They were always there faithfully. Every one of them died because of it. Bingo beaten to death by a cop, official cause of death, TB, although Ricky Lavalley saw the cop do it, saw his condition, and then he was killed for knowing that after. And all of these things are normal, what has to do with Aboriginal people in Canada and elsewhere. They're not citizens under the law. You can kill them and there's no legal consequence. So seven of our native activists in Vancouver were all murdered. And yet, who knows them today? If you mention them, they're not known. They weren't even known enough to be forgotten. They're just oblivious. And yet, I realize all, out of all of this that theirs is the victory, because look at what they forced out at great cost, but look at the truth that's come out, and it's now in our hands what we do with that. We have it in our hands to begin the world again, but only because of people like Harry and Ricky and William. Let me just finish with these words. Most of us respond to a savage beating by pleading, either to the beater or to the world. We cry out about the terrible wrong done to us waiting for mercy or a helping hand. We exhaust ourselves trying to convince people and win their support. And because we look to others, that's usually where our efforts end. But some of us evolve beyond pleading, and we actually begin to change. We see the brutality that we face for what it is, and we clench our own fists, preparing for the next time. We have no need to summon help or convince anyone of anything, or demand anything from the government or anyone else, for our attention is now on the next battle and our own capacity to endure it, especially the battle within ourselves. Well, I was compelled to evolve like that over the hard years I've faced because the attacks never stopped, either on me or my friends. I stopped trying to compulsively prove to the world our case and the evidence I had acquired. I learned to turn away from such dependency thinking and find my own purpose. And that's when the social movement I had launched became something more than mere protest. We, in fact, became the power that would govern events and force change. We became the power that would govern events and force change. The full panoply of this shift came as a shock to me, for as one fixed in a desperate battle, my old mind and instincts yielded grudgingly. But the impact of what we did toppled leaders and raised up the crust, just as the Magnificent promised. And the miracle begins... And it began with an inner shift in me, and from there spread out and touched others. Maybe that change was the missing piece that had eluded my friends and I, the final veil that we all had to pass through. Before that shift happened, I felt like I was pounding on a huge immovable door, screaming my outrage at dead walls and the shadowy criminals they sheltered, like now. But now that the barrier vanished, I knew that I was the one directing events. And then it was just a matter of doing. And that discovery of our power is really what this transformation is about. You know, we 
found out 15 years ago that the crimes happening today are nothing new at all. Like Harry Truman said, the only thing new in the world is a history you didn't know about. And this genocide is just the latest phase. This COVID corporate police state is something that's been happening to a lot of people for a long time. It's just now affecting us. And let me just finish with this. One night, a year after Harry Wilson had been killed, I was speaking to a gathering of other stricken people in Liverpool, England. After the meeting, one of them approached me. She was a woman my age, but seemingly older, a local resident who had hung on my every word. She had been visibly moved when I spoke about my persecuted and imprisoned free-thinking ancestor, Peter Annett, in England, who was born in Liverpool. She and I chatted over coffee as people came and went, and she kept staring at me like one who draws the best water from the deepest part of the well. Finally, the woman said to me quietly, I've been trying to figure out who you are for years, and now I think I finally understand you. Oh, yeah, I replied, feeling awkward. She nodded, wide-eyed, and she said to me, You were sent here to uproot and tear down the old so the new can grow. You're a system smasher. I smiled at the simple truth. It's so precisely nailed. Thank you, I answered. Thank you for seeing me. She took my hand and she whispered tearfully, and your Indian friends, they saw it in you too. That's why they stood by you to the very end. Well, at that moment, a flood of tears and appreciation for my fallen friends filled me and a profound gratitude for who they really were. All five of us had together stumbled over the secret that our lives are not ultimately our own. Another survivor named Frankel put it this way, the true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world rather than within man and his psyche. For being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself. The more a man forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or to others to love, the more human he becomes and the more he actualizes himself. Self-actualization is not attainable in itself, but is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. Well, people not privy to the secret continually ask me why I don't worry more about myself and about staying safe, that all cure-all incantation. The same kind of people used to relate to my four friends as broken objects to be fixed rather than a miracle in progress. Bingo and Hare and the others certainly never spend any time worrying about their own personal healing. That's a white word, not one of their own. Like me, their days were directed toward the who those who they had to help and what they had to overcome in a world trying to stomp them to death. Forgetting about ourselves, we ended up moving mountains. Narcissists never move anything. But smashing systems is the prerogative of those who are no longer the center of their own universe, but revolve around a higher fixed point. And that's what my friends demonstrated to me. And that's really the gift given to all of us, learning to rotate around that higher fixed point outside ourselves because face it friends we live in a neurotic narcissistic culture where everything it's like being in a house of mirrors you remember when you're a kid and you went to the the carnival you got staring in all these mirrors in the house of mirrors and you couldn't find your way out well that's what life is like in our culture and we have to overcome that narcissism in ourselves and find a higher fixed point, and that will sustain us. It overcomes every fear that holds us back, including the fear of suffering and death. And that was my great lesson that I learned from my friends. Our time's run out today. I hope you've enjoyed the brief description and the summary of recent events and also these deep reflections, which I think is part of the light through our darkness.
I look forward to next week with your folks. Murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.ca, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Stay strong and stay clear. God be with you all.